Good afternoon. Welcome to Screen Cleaning, the show that's, that shines a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. My name is Jeff Simpson. And my name is Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week to do just that, to give you the very best. And there's a lot of good that's going on in the entertainment industry right now. Unfortunately, everything is still pretty much shut down movie-wise, but we're still here recording separately, but together in purpose and goal. And uh, we've got a great show for you today. In fact, we've got a great guest coming up on the show. Isn't that right, Cole? We do. We will be talking a little bit of sci-fi today, including a star of one of the more popular, two of the more popular, really, uh, sci-fi shows of all time. But that's coming up after the best of entertainment news, which I tried to focus also as I looked for news this week and scoured the Internet for sci-fi related news. I'm keeping it on theme, starting with Tom Cruise shooting a movie in space. Really? Yes. Is it Mission Impossible goes to space or is it a different franchise? Tom Cruise uh, is going to space to shoot a movie. And really, that, that's all we know. Uh, NASA's involved. Elon Musk and SpaceX may or may not be involved. The Mission Impossible franchise is probably not involved. But the guy that has known Hollywood over for raising the level of his stunt work with each successive movie that he is in is going to space for his next big stunt. Maybe it'll be like a an IMAX movie or something, you know, a documentary of some kind. Oh, I'm sure they could. Yeah, they could go all kinds of different ways with it. Anything is possible, Cole. Anything. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt your space news. I understand there's more. Oh, yeah, uh, because Netflix will be launching a new Space Force TV show, and we got the first trailer from it this past week, starring Steve Carell and Lisa Kudrow, and, and a lot of folks from uh, the sitcom world have come together to make fun of a one-line joke that is now actually a, a reality. Uh, it's Space Force. Interesting. Okay. Well, it, I saw the trailer. It looked like pretty star-studded cast there. A lot of even some Academy Award nominated or winning actors are going to be in that. So I guess that's one to check out. Coming to Netflix cool. later this month. Okay. Well, speaking of Netflix, we know that a lot of shows are adapting to this new format that they have to have. But what about the scripted series that really, I mean... A lot of people are not working right now because they just can't get together to film these series. They're coming up with alternative ways to have a show. And the latest iteration that we're seeing is animation. So the show that's on Netflix right now that's that's dabbling in this is One Day at a Time. And then also season seven of The Blacklist is going to have an animated season finale amid all this shutdown that they're experiencing what do you think of that cole do you think that's do you think that's uh i mean it is gimmicky but it's gimmicky out of necessity not because they're trying to get ratings i guess they're just i guess in a way they are trying to get ratings they're trying to get anything out there is what they're trying to do (laughs) i I think when you employ a gimmick and and i have always said this you need to have a reason for doing it it needs to fit within the logic of the show that you are making i've seen three episodes of the blacklist tops and it does not strike me as the kind of show that translates to a goofy animation episode whereas there was another show 
uh, one of my personal favorites, Community, that was on NBC, that did delve into a video game episode and a stop motion episode around Christmas time, a felt puppet episode once. Uh, they've they kind of built their whole show logic around goofy one-off episodes and community is actually coming back here talk about people getting together despite the quarantine for a a little table read and that's going to include donald glover uh, also known as childish gambino the musical artist Mm. okay i gotta tell you some really wacky news do you have anything else you want to share before we get into that I, i think i'm good i'm ready for wacky okay this is certainly wacky um now all due respect to Gary Busey, who's been in some really fun <laughs> films. Um, he's kind of made a reputation for himself as being quite a character, especially lately. So he is going to be in a new series where he will play a judge. He will be adjudicating animal arguments. The name of the show, Pet Judge. And it'll be May 25th. Now, to be clear... It's not like he's going to be talking to animals who are arguing. It's not like the animals are barking or <laughs> are yapping sure? at each other back and forth. But it's the owners of these pets that have these squabbles uh. that they've got to come together. And Gary Busey is uh, is going to be the judge. And apparently they're promising that, you know, who knows what sort of wacky sentences he'll he'll put out as a judge nah that sounds too realistic i liked it better when it was just two animals that are barking and meowing (laughs) at each other and gary Busey's not wacky enough for you yeah all right all right well so there's that to look forward to Speaking of other things to look forward to, if you've heard that music on the show before, then you know that it's usually associated with a good friend of ours, Rod Gustafson. Rod, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Hey, it's good to be here. Gosh, I miss you guys. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait till we can all be in the same soundproof room again. It's been a minute, as the kids are saying these days. Rod joins us on the show every month or so to catch us up on movie reviews, movies we may have missed. But there's not a lot of movies to be missing nowadays, and so he has instead brought a couple television shows. And I might add that I did not tell him we were talking sci-fi and that we would be speaking to one of the stars of Star Trek today. He, of his own volition, wanted to talk about Star Trek on this Our Star Trek Day Rod, it was meant to be. Yeah, well, you know what? It kind of worked like this. I figured if we're going to be sitting at home, I needed to beef up my streaming devices. So I, I, I bought a, a insert advertisement here. I bought a Roku and I got three months free on CBS All Access. And I thought, okay, I want to see what I've been missing out on in Star Trek. And actually, my wife, Donna, she loves Star Trek. She gets hooked into it far more than even I do. <laughs> so we've been binging Star Trek over the last while. And uh, we watched the new Picard series. And I thought, you know, and we're also working through, uh, we're also working through the Discovery uh, series as well. So I thought for people, maybe, you know, everybody seems to have met Netflix. A lot of people have Amazon Prime. But if you haven't checked out CBS All Access, this really is their flagship product, in my opinion. 
and and what I think is driving people to sign up for CBS All Access. So the Picard series, uh, the first one that we watched, this begins 20 years after Star Trek Nemesis, which released it. That was the movie that released back in 2002. And of course, this is starring Patrick Stewart playing Captain Picard, who many are arguing is the best Star Trek captain. And I mm. must admit, I have grown to to really appreciate his character of Picard even more as the years have gone by, especially at my age, because, you know, it used to be Shatner all the way. But, you know, poor old Bill really starting to fade. But I, uh, I really enjoyed watching this series. Picard is a slower-moving series than maybe what you're used to with most Star Trek films and series. But maybe I'm just getting old like Patrick Stewart and Captain Picard. I kind of enjoyed just kind of diving in a little deeper with a more cerebral uh, type of a plot line. Now, I should mention that the way these shows work on CBS All Access is that you have a story arc that goes through the entire season. Unlike, you know, the original Star Trek television episodes, you would get occasionally you would get recurring characters and that type of thing. But each show is pretty much independent. But in this case, you get a story arc that goes through the entire through the entire season. Of course, this is on demand. All of these, all of the first series season of Picard is now available. So you can watch the whole thing in one day if you choose to do that. <laughs> I've started watching Picard as well. And it it carries the Star Trek name, but it spiritually feels more like other prestige TV like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or where it focuses on one intriguing character and it tells uh -huh. a long form story over many episodes. Whereas the old like the Star Trek that we grew up with, whichever Star Trek it was, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, any of them, they have a large ensemble cast. You kind of focus on, you know, a few you get to know everyone and, and every single episode is independent. And Picard is not that it is very much modern television just with the Star Trek name. Quick question. Uh, for the lay person uh, who is not familiar with Jeff. this cast outside of the movies, is this something I can just jump into and enjoy or am I going to is this going to be way over my head? Yeah, you know, that is a really good question, Jeff. I think that you need to have just a little bit of background in this case at least we'll go and stream, rent, whatever you want to do, Star Trek Nemesis, the movie from 2002. There was a key character in that movie. His name was Data. And he was also very much a, a main character in the, uh, in the television series in the 1980s. And so if you were familiar with that little sliver of the Star Trek canon, you will enjoy Picard much better because this series does really involve... Uh, the loss, the death of, okay, well, a bit of a spoiler Oof, here. If you haven't Rod. seen the movie from 2002, okay, I'll back off. It involves <laughs> the death of a key character. <laughs> ah. And if you know about that, that will help you enjoy and understand this series much more. Was it, so, Rod, yeah, was it Nemesis to, or was it you, Insurrection that talked had had more of Picard in the Borg? So I'm only about three episodes in, but there is a Borg cube that one of the characters is over yes. on. I feel like the Borg are going to come into play as well. We need to be familiar with them. Yes, yes. Being familiar with the Borg would be a good thing. Being familiar with the Romulans would be a good thing. Okay, let's just say it. 
yeah, you really, you probably to really enjoy this, you're going to need to be a little familiar with some of the key, some of the key characters of Star Trek in order to make this work for you. And it was a Romulan. I was surprised how it kind of ties into the Star Trek 09 movie because it was a Romulan that was a bad guy there and kind of the the events of that movie that led to the splintering and the fractured universe are yes. also addressed. Yes. Yeah, exactly. There is a, there is a key major plot thing that happens in the, in the reboot Star Trek movie in 2009 that also comes into this as well. So you're right, guys, the more we talk about this, the more <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those things that you take for granted when you hop into a series like this about how much, you already know about the background of Star Trek. So, yeah, you would be best to know at least some of those things, especially surrounding uh, surrounding Captain Picard and his adventures in the Star Trek universe. Yes, for sure. That's Star Trek Picard. That's the one focused on just one character. But we have another of the the big crew stories, and that's Star Trek Discovery, also on CBS All Access. Yeah, this one now, this one goes back a few years this launched in 2017 and really this again this is what launched cbs's all access network because they had just a massive amount of subscriptions once once star trek discovery launched on there so there's two seasons of star trek discovery available and yeah this goes much more into this is more like the star trek you're familiar with in many ways where you've got the large crew and multiple cast and characters a lot of new people come to this but i can also tell you this that that this ship is headed towards a very familiar direction because this one happens prior to the original Star Trek series from the 1960s that people my age are familiar with. So, But also so slightly after Enterprise, which was also already a prequel mm-hmm. to... Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One thing I should mention with both Star Trek Discovery and Picard is... This is streaming video. They don't have all the usual regulations they have with broadcasting. So, you know, these would both fall into the PG-13. In fact, some episodes are harder PG-13. And when you do stream them, you'll notice each episode has a little rating at the top. Most of them are TV-14, but some of them are mature. So if you are watching with some of your kids, just keep an eye on that little rating that appears on the top left corner when you start it. And, uh, and then go from there, parents. But just a, a heads up on this. This is not your usual broadcast Star Trek. Okay. I was uh, unfamiliar with most of what you guys just talked about. But there is a sci-fi movie with which I'm very familiar, which I understand you want to talk about right now, Rod. Well, just really briefly, the wonderful classic cult movie, Galaxy Quest, it turned 20 years old in December on December 26th of last year. So it's celebrating its 20th birthday this year. And uh, if you are a Star Trek fan and you are, are familiar with Star Trek, you have got to see Galaxy Quest. In my opinion, this is one not only one of the best spoof movies ever done, but uh, I and I've heard other people say this as well. This is one of the best Star Trek movies ever made, <laughs> even though it's not a Star Trek movie. It is works on so many levels. And when this movie first came out in 1999, 
it didn't get much in the way of marketing. The studio wasn't really behind it. And, and uh, I, I read a, a Hollywood Reporter, uh, or sorry, yeah, it was in Hollywood Reporter a few weeks ago that Jeffrey Katzenberg from actually apologized that they missed the boat on this one, that it really was that good. This is a tremendous film. So it's called Galaxy Quest, if you're not familiar with it. Jeff, quick question for you. You say you're not really into Star Trek, but did you... Do you like Galaxy Quest? You enjoyed it? Absolutely. And this is one of those films that on the surface, you're like, I don't know. It looks pretty silly because I didn't know how to market it. And I had to twist my mother-in-law's arm to sit down and watch this with us. She had an absolute blast, just like I promised <laughs> her. And uh, it has a, one of the best casts in any movie, let alone any sci-fi movie. And it's interesting that you mention it because another movie, which I've seen, speaking of how this movie was made, there's a movie, a documentary uh, about the making of Galaxy Quest that you can watch for free on Amazon Prime. Yes. And uh, in in this film, David Mamet, who is this amazing award winning screenwriter who uh, at the, it starts out with a quote that, that says there are only, I think, four or five perfect movies ever made. And he goes through the others and, you know, there's like the Godfather and all the, these other movies. And then the last one he mentions is Galaxy Quest. And then also in that movie, one of the interview subjects does say exactly what you said. This is the greatest Star Trek movie. And it's not even a Star Trek movie. The, it came out in 99, I know, because 1999 was the greatest year of movies ever, uh, which would Perfect. also have made it an even numbered Star Trek movie. And the theory holds that... <laughs> All the even-numbered Star Trek movies are good and the odd-numbered ones are bad. Nemesis kind of broke that because it was not very well-received. But if you stick Galaxy Quest in right between Insurrection and Nemesis, where it belongs, <laughs> then it's good. Nemesis, not so much. And then Star Trek 09 is good again. It all fits. Spoken like a, a true wow. Star Trek fan, Cole. <laughs> I was going to say, Cole, you, you thought this through far, far more deeply than I did. That's my job. I agree completely. <laughs> well, Rod, we really appreciate you joining us here today on Screen Cleaning. And yeah, you can check out the series Picard and uh, the other Star Trek series that you mentioned on CBS All Access. Well, much to Jeff's chagrin, our Star Trek conversation will not be ending because coming up right after this, it is a, a conversation that I was so much looking forward to. Walter Koenig, the actor who portrayed Chekhov in the original Star Trek television shows and those first six movies, uh, will be on the show to talk to us just about his career and a new book that he has coming out. That's coming up next on Screen Cleaning. Welcome back into Screen Cleaning. I'm Cole Wissinger with a special guest. Yeah, once in a while here on the show, between Jeff and my ramblings about pop culture, we bring in someone uh, with, with some credentials and a history in the industry. And gosh, that is certainly the case today. Walter Koenig is an actor and a screenwriter with a fantastic bio. I know because it is all in his new book, Beaming Up and Getting Off, Life Before and Beyond Star Trek, available for your quarantine reading pleasure. Welcome to Screen Cleaning, Mr. Walter Koenig. Ah, thank you, Cole. 
So I'm going to start with the question that I'm sure your very nice publicist would like me to ask. Uh, what is new with the book and what is new with you that prompted it? Well, you know, the book is a, a compilation of old decades of my life. I, um, we, we, we published the initial volume back in 97, I think. And uh, then I was approached by the publishers to re- republish the uh, first 60 years and then an update on the last 21. Uh, so it's everything. It's everything to do with um, uh, how... Uh, um, my life began, and, and all of the um, and all of the adventures, uh, big and small, uh, mostly small, um, that I you know that I've experienced during the course of these eight decades, um, and how uh, uh, how my you know how my sense of perspective has changed over the course of that time. Um, that that's that's what the beauty part of doing a book in, in two volumes, uh, you think you wrapped it up, you know, by, by the time I finished the, f- the first volume and published it in, in the late uh, 90s, I thought that was pretty much it. In fact, I bought a dog from my wife uh, thinking that she would have a companion once I passed on. And um, damn it, uh, I'm still here and the dog is still here. <laughs> there you go. So yes, we have to um, kind of reconcile that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's so that's it. I'm I'm very uh, I'm candid. I'm uh, personal. I uh, I think I I uh, I don't talk I don't talk down to the reader. I talk to the reader. Um, it's kind of the way I I live my life. Uh, uh, pretty straightforward. Um, um, I don't tell I don't tell tall tales or, or or bad stories uh for the most part yeah uh, once in a while once in a while you know if i've got a um a complaint i might i might um you know articulate it but for the, for the most part it's it's the fun of of life and the, the joy and the uh opportunity to uh have been so lucky as to live this one yeah, I uh, the reason I probably wasn't familiar with it at first is because I really don't care, generally speaking, about Hollywood memoirs or tell-alls, because all of that gossip does not appeal to the part of entertainment and movies and TV that I like. And so it was very refreshing to be reading through and realize that you're just a guy that's that's telling stories about his life. And it was, the, the whole book is just very storytelling-based, and I really appreciated your brand of Candid's a really good word for it, uh, storytelling. So could you tell us kind of the story of how you got to where you are? I, I look back now at, at this vintage period in, in my life, and I look back and I say, did I, did I ever anticipate this particular life? Not that it was extraordinary by any means, but what did I think growing up? How did I feel about where where my life would go? And the truth of the matter is, I didn't have much of. Uh, uh, I wasn't goal oriented. I, I I didn't know what the world was going to bring, and I was um, intimidated enough just by life itself to not have any great expectations. Um, every time I had a success. Um, to one degree or another, it was a surprise. I said, "Wow, well, look at that! I, I, that that happened." So I, it, was, it was always this, I always had a very fresh feeling 
It's not that I was lazy. I just didn't know what direction my life was going to go. I, um, I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist. Um, and uh, that didn't work because I, I was really very, very weak in the area of physical sciences. And uh, through circumstances, um, I, ch- I, ch- I changed the majors and ended up with a degree in psychology. But at the same time, I um, took a course in acting at UCLA because I wanted a diversion, something other than um, than the kind of thing that I was that I was um, working toward in uh, uh, my major. And as a consequence, I had a, uh, a teacher who was very enthusiastic and very supportive, a, a drama teacher. And um, having lost my father. Um, just a little while before that, I didn't have a great deal of guidance as to what I should be doing. And he recommended my going to a drama school in New York and was the representative for that school on the West Coast. Now, that, you know, at that, at that point, I, uh, once I started drama school, Neighborhood Playhouse, at that point, I, 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 I knew this, this was it. Uh, this is uh, where my destiny was. Whether I was going to ha- ever have any success at it was <laughs> was moot. But it was uh, the dire- at least I had a direction in, in which to, uh, to to follow. And then, then that direction took you towards. I guess I haven't actually mentioned it yet. Um, but to Star Trek, right? Pavlov Chekhov ends in Chekhov on the original Star Trek, a defining role for sure. And I'm sure you've been answering the same Star Trek questions for the past 50 or so years. But take people back to when it was in its early days. When did you realize that this wasn't an ordinary show and that this wasn't an ordinary group of just TV fans, that Trekkies were something different? Well, um, you know, very much in keeping with what I just said, um, each event that uh, moved me deeper and deeper into the Star Trek world was a surprise. Um, I came on a, and I came on a show that was disabled. Um, that people were saying was going to be canceled. I came on the second season, and people were saying that it was going to be canceled after the second season. Um, and we survived that with the, with the uh, great contribution of enthusiastic fans who wrote letters and had uh, picket lines and all of that good stuff. Um, so we did a third season, and, and, and since that did not go well and we'd been switched from one time period, which was a very, a very good um, time period for us, to another, which was... Uh, uh, sort of um, a death, death slot. Death, yeah, the death. Yeah, I was going to say Death Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought for sure we were done after after season three, and then you know uh, uh, I, that was it. And now what do I do with the rest of my life? And I had a little trouble getting started. I had three or four months when uh, I was really despondent because the phone wasn't ringing and uh, I, I, I was not being offered any other opportunities. And came to a point, you know. Where you, you know, I'm a great believer in Darwin, and he's, you know, he said, "Adapt or die," <laughs> and and that's pretty much. Uh, I, I woke up one morning and said, "I cannot just stare at the uh, the flaking ceiling in my in our low rent apartment. Um, I've got to do something. I can't. I have to have some function, some purpose." And I just sat down without any training 
and without an outline, I just started writing a novel. Uh, the merit in the novel is the doing, the fact that I, I had uh, some structure, that I had an objective, that I had something that I could look forward to, whether I wrote uh, a half a page or three pages in a day, I came away feeling better about myself. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a prescient story here now during the quarantine, too, because anyone, you know, if you kind of define yourself by your job and you're not currently doing your job, then what's going on, right? Like, if you're an actor that's not acting, then are you really an actor? But if you're a writer, too, if you're adding things to what you're doing and you're making yourself more than just one thing, that's going to help. Yeah, well, you know, I, I wonder, you know, five years from now when people start doing uh, uh, more in-depth de- in sociological studies mm-hmm. of what this particular time, ha- how it has affected society. I, I think they're going to find some very interesting statistics. Uh, you know, everybody's in the same boat. No, well, like everybody except, the, I guess, the people who are uh, economically independent. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, and, and how we how we dealt with this this inactivity and this ennui and this and this sense of lack of productivity and this lack of a way of identifying ourselves, this self image that has got to come into play um, when you're stuck at home and. Uh, there's not, and you have a, and you have been trained to do a specific kind of work, and you're not uh, getting the opportunity to do that. How is that going to affect society? How is it going to affect our politics, our economics, and our personal psychology? I think I think that's going to be an interesting area to to uh, diagram, you know, a few years down the road. Absolutely. Do you do you have a favorite uh, audition story? Like whenever you were in between things and you were starting to get back into it, um, what it was like going to auditions, uh, either for Star Trek or then you know after Star Trek when you just were check off. Well, I have some bizarre stories, <laughs> stories where I made an absolute fool of myself, only because I thought I was being inventive. You know, I I wasn't going to count on the fact that just going in. And reading the lines was going to get me the part. And I had, you know, I had training at drama school where we where we experimented when we when we did different things. So when we we tried uh, different approaches to the work, pushing the boundaries. So I, yeah, that's acting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I pushed the boundaries right out the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I. I uh, I, 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 I at one point early on, I had a manager who was absolutely psychotic i mean you know, i don't use that term irresponsibly mm. i mean the man was clinically nuts and um he arranged an order on, on uh, an audition for me over at warner brothers and i was very young i was in my late no i was yeah i was in my late 20s uh and um and it was for warners and uh they were looking for you know pretty much establishment kind of uh, storytelling and um, characters. And he convinced me, my manager convinced me to do a pantomime uh, <laughs> as, as Charlie Chaplin uh, courting a female devil who was eight feet tall. I, I swear to you, I am not exaggerating. <laughs> and you were able to do that with a straight face? I did it with a straight face, but with absolutely n- no sense of approbation. Oh. Um, the, 
the uh, casting director was totally bewildered and and looked at us really askance. Uh, what what are these what are these people up to? And uh, he 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 just, he just not, could not relate. And I don't blame him. I mean what <laughs> I mean they were doing you know seventy seven Sunset Strip and shows that were extremely commercial with very pretty faces. And uh, I was coming in as Charlie Champlin in a, in a pantomime. Um, That's awesome. That was before Star Trek. Whenever you write down uh, the story of auditioning for Star Trek, you put in the accent in in the words in your book. I was wondering if they actually wrote that accent into the script that you were supposed to read, or did it just look like normal, normally spelled words that you had to accentify? No, no, there was no accent. Okay, <clears throat> which is something either I take. Um, pride in, or or I have to, <laughs> I have to uh, confess to because uh, whether you like it, the, the accent or not, I suppose. No, the character was they actually named the character Jones, and and, and their inspiration for the character uh, was uh, was Davy Jones, uh, the uh, oh the sure monkey. yeah yeah. So he didn't even have the name Chekhov at the time, um, but it was meant to be read with an accent. Um, that was for sure, and uh, and and that's a very curious story. I'll be as brief as I can, that's all um, right. because it 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 just uh, so underscores the capriciousness of this business. Uh, I had played a Russian on another television series. I guest starred in another television series, and the same casting director called me in for for, for Star Trek, and the, the lines that I was rehearsing outside. We were something on the order of Captain, the ship is about to blow up. What are we going to do? And it was obviously, this was a very young man and very nervous and tense. And, uh, and I approached it that way. And I got finished reading and there was dead silence in the room. And I thought, my God, how could I have failed so badly? Well, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. And this was, this was my di- inner dialogue. And after what, what seemed an eternity, uh, Gene Roddenberry said to me, that was okay, Walter, but can you make the character funny? Funny. <laughs> there was nothing in the dialogue that was funny. Yeah. You know, I have, I have a certain professional integrity. So after a, a, a very lo- long five seconds of personal struggle, <laughs> I reread it saying, Captain, guess what? The sheep is about to blow up. And they cracked up and they laughed and I got the part. <laughs> no way. That's yeah. remarkable. So um, so you get the part, you're on TV for those three years that you mentioned, but then they come to you and they're going to make Star Trek the motion picture, which leads to six more, seven for you, movies that you're in as Chekhov. What were some of the differences in, I guess, the process or just your day-to-day life as, as an actor? Well, the process uh, was when, you know... You have a 55, 56-page television script. You've got to shoot it in six days. So you are obligated as producer, hyphen, director, and, and cast to shoot 10, 10 pages a day. And uh, since we've been playing these, uh, these characters for some time, we knew better than anyone how they should be uh, played and, and what our interpretation was. Mm-hmm. We were just pretty much on our own to, to play the characters. I don't remember ever, ever being given a, 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 an acting direction. 
by any of the directors that uh, worked with us. That isn't to say they didn't have the ability or the talent. They just didn't have the time. And in fact, in one case, um, we were we, we had an, there was an edict that had come down when they cut the budget on the show. We, we couldn't go more than two increments over six o'clock in the evening. Right, right. Uh, overtime. Uh, and uh, we were doing a show called The Way to Eden, and the director had evidently been promised a second directing job if he could get us, if he could get the show done by 12 minutes after six. And we still had two scenes to do. And he was a very nervous fellow. And um, <laughs> he had, had a, a major scene with Leonard and Bill that he had to direct. And he looked around the room and pointed to me and said, set up the other scene, block it and get it ready. Uh, and so as soon as I finish with this scene, we can go ahead and, and shoot yours. Okay, sure. And, <laughs> yeah, when I had never directed anything in film in my life. And, uh, and it was a scene with me and Mary R- Linda Rappelier, who played my love interest. But I did it. I, I said, okay, let's get a camera over here. Uh, we're going to walk from here to here. We're going to set it up. And he got done with the first scene in six minutes, and he came in, and we shot that. And and then we actually shot the scene that I had uh, that I had blocked out. So and in, so I, I say that not so much in terms of pride as as I do in terms of um, the, the contributions that directors made. The the term that generally is used that directors in television are traffic cops. You know, they just sort of. Just sort of move us around around the uh, the, the soundstage. In in movies, you you shoot two pages a day, a page and a half, two pages a day. So um, much more time is is given to uh, the more aesthetic elements of of, 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 a, of shooting a, a film. And there were discussions with the with, with actors and and directors didn't take us aside and uh, give us notes. So. But other than that, you know, it's still the same characters and still relationships. Uh, the, 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 the effects are more likely to be uh, during production as post-production. But ultimately, you know, it's still a camera and, and still, you know, a, an acting space, a space that we, we worked in. So it wasn't, it wasn't that different. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us a peek behind the curtain today. We've been speaking with Walter Koenig, famous for his role as Chekhov on the original Star Trek. If I could, I'd like to read just a a small snippet from uh, the book that's just recently out, Beaming Up and Getting Off, Life Before and Beyond Star Trek. You say the thing that makes Star Trek what it is, and not like any other sci-fi franchise, is that there's a pureness of heart, a true sense of compassion, and a belief in human rights for all. It's not about death, destruction, or disillusion. It's about hope. And it's there wherever I go, talking about the the people, the conventions that you go to as well. As long as those people are around, I'm placing my bets on mankind. Walter, those are beautiful words. It was a fun book to get through, and, and I appreciate you coming on today to uh, share some stories as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Cole. We will have more Star Trek and sci-fi movie and TV talk when we come back on Screen Cleaning.
Welcome back into Screen Cleaning, and thank you just once again to Walter Koenig taking some time out of his day uh, to share with us some some of those behind-the-scenes stories and what it was like being on the set of one of the most culturally significant television shows of all time, and then on the movies as well. That That's the part that I kind of was really intrigued by, the, the differences between how much freedom it seemed like they got on the TV set where, you know, they know the characters and just let them go, whereas when they were started to be directed by movie directors, uh, there was a little bit more hands-on stuff. And those Star Trek movies uh, hold as kind of a, a unique thing in the world of television and movies because they did bring the cast back. A lot of times when you saw movies coming out in, in the 80s and especially 90s and 2000s that were based on television shows, they were entirely recast and often they were making fun of the 60s shows, whereas Star Trek never got there. They, they were always very genuine and still held to that cast and what made Star Trek Star Trek. And sci-fi as a genre really did that more than others. Interesting. You know, Cole, we never watched the show growing up, so I don't think I've seen a single episode of Star Trek. However, my dad took me to pretty much every movie that was out there. So I've seen quite a few of these Star Trek movies, including some of the ones with uh, Captain Kirk and some of the other original cast members. So um, I'll I'll be familiar with at least a few of these that you talk about. <laughs> Off the top, yeah. So there were six movies that starred the original cast. And then Star Trek The Next Generation, the television show, came out uh, in the late 80s. And then a couple other spinoffs as well. And so in Star Trek Generations, they made the transition. Walter Koenig appeared in that along with Jimmy Doohan and... Bill Shatner, uh, reprising their roles as Chekhov, Scotty, and Captain Kirk to kind of pass the baton over to the next-gen cast that would take Generations, First Contact, my personal favorite in the film series, and then Insurrection and Nemesis, which we also kind of mentioned way earlier with Rod on the show. And then there's another long gap, and you have three new, new movies where it's all the characters from the original series, uh, but they are recast as younger folks and in an alternate timeline, Star Trek in 2009, then Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond. And then kind of this looming uh, production of a Quentin Tarantino R-rated Star Trek movie, have you read anything the lately about that? Of is Star that still Trek happening? Is uncertain. That is the only thing that's certain about it. <laughs> um, but we are waiting to see what Star Trek fourteen will give us. I imagine that Star Trek Generations would have been like the greatest gift to any Star Trek fan out there to bring these two great casts uh, cast together and just see them all on the big screen together at the same time. I, I can imagine people would be so giddy over that. It's probably my first experience with Star Trek was seeing Star Trek Generations. So one I didn't the, know how big of an event that was. One of the tidbits from Walter's book that I didn't bring up during the interview, but right around when The Undiscovered Country was coming out, Star Trek VI, they were tossing around the idea. I mean, 
the original cast was getting older by this point, and Star Trek is kind of supposed to be an action-y kind of movie. Uh, and so right around when Star Trek VI came out, before Generations, they were talking about recasting them as younger characters and, and going back and like exploring the younger days of Kirk and what they ended up doing in Star Trek Nine. They'd been tossing around in the 80s. That idea got shelved. We made all the next-gen movies, and then it came back down and gave us what J.J. Abrams and, and Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, what they gave us in Star Trek 09. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's J.J. Abrams' best movie, Star Trek. Ooh. Don't you think, Cole? I mean, I, th- I think it's I think it's I pretty agree great. with you. That's yeah. a bold statement. So, yeah. Another sci-fi television show that I, I didn't really ever watch. I probably saw an episode here and there, but it was a, a big deal when it was on and it's it's come back a couple of times. But again, I've always been much more familiar with the movie versions of these television shows. I don't know if it's just because it's easier to swallow in small doses or if it's just too much of a time commitment or maybe I don't know. Maybe I wasn't even allowed to watch the show. I don't know. But The X-Files was a huge hit and one that I, like I said, just never got into as a TV show. But I did see both of the movies when they came out. And uh, the first movie was a huge success. I remember everybody being so excited to see it. And I felt like I could enjoy that movie uh, as a standalone experience and not have to have seen every episode leading up to that. Um, The second movie that came out, didn't do as well in fact it bombed quite spectacularly and uh yeah but i've seen both of them i enjoyed them both to a certain degree especially the first one and it it's probably enough to to get me to go back and watch the show i think since then i've seen an episode or two of the show but uh, i don't know cole do you think that's something worth going back and watching I love the X-Files television show, and this is where we differ again, as we often do on the program. I have I have an encyclopedic memory of all of these television episodes. Star Trek The X-Files, um, another sci-fi show that ended up getting a movie, Firefly. I have seen the season, one season of Firefly, over and over and over <laughs> again, whereas Serenity, maybe once or twice, I've seen the movie. Okay. Again, that's another series that I've been told is spectacular. I just haven't gotten my feet wet there. But when I was younger, I think the first time I saw this movie may have been in junior high when one of my teachers showed it to us for some reason. I don't know. I Looking back, I realized we watch a lot. We watched a lot of movies in that class. And uh, this was just one of them. It was the Twilight Zone movie, or better yet, it's actually called Twilight Zone, the movie. And this was a big deal when this movie was being made. Steven Spielberg was behind it. Joe Dante, George Miller. John Landis. Yes. Suffice it to say, I'm a huge fan of Twilight Zone, the movie. And especially because of the segment that's directed by George Miller. You know, we're a fan, or at least I'm a fan of George Miller and all the Mad Max movies that that he did. He did a remake of a classic episode starring William Shatner uh, where he thinks he sees this gremlin goblin creature on the plane. Nobody believes him. This version stars John Lithgow and he's fantastic in it. And the movie's book ended by this uh, interesting character played by Dan Aykroyd, who likes to say things like, 
you want to see something really scary. Anyway, I'm a fan of the movie. I actually have seen quite a bit of the Twilight Zone television series, probably a couple seasons worth. I've also listened to the Twilight Zone radio dramas, quite a few of those as well. So of all of these sci-fi series, I'm far and away the biggest fan of the Twilight Zone, or at least it, within this conversation, I'm the bigger fan of the two of us. And the only real knock on Twilight Zone, the movie, is that it's kind of just a long episode of the Twilight Zone. They didn't do anything like daring or new. But also a knock on Star Trek, the motion picture, was that they were maybe too indulgent in the cinematics of it all. There's a scene that I swear lasts for half the movie, it feels like, where you're just being introduced to the Enterprise. And they pan back and there's dramatic music playing and it just takes so long and if this was just an episode of star trek we've seen the enterprise before it orbits from right to left or left to right and it's the same little model going around a planet and and that's fine let's get to the episode right but because it's a movie we got to get our money's worth and and the star trek budget famously ballooned out of control and and, and so for whatever reason it is though the sci-fi genre lends itself to the movie Well, Cole, I've enjoyed talking about sci-fi and especially that interview with Walter Koenig from Star Trek. And who knows, maybe maybe you've made a uh, maybe you've piqued my interest in the franchise and maybe I'll take a look. I can only hope when we return, as always, we're going to do a little panning for good, as well as uh, talking a little bit about a movie that we probably ought to have seen by now. That's all up next here on Screen Cleaning. Okay, okay. Now, I know we've been talking Star Trek on the show, but this past week was May the 4th, and it just would not be a sci-fi show on screen cleaning if we didn't nod a little bit to Star Wars. Now, Star Trek was born on the small screen and then expanded to the large, whereas Star Wars is more known for its movies, mainly its Skywalker saga that just recently ended. But there's a television show that just recently ended this week that is also worth checking out. It is The Clone Wars that was originally just on television. It went to Netflix for just half of a season. And now with Disney+, Plus, we got the final season, and it was so, so satisfying. Brought a conclusion to this story that kind of spans the gap between The Clone Wars uh, the the Attack of the Clones movie, and then Revenge of the Sith, which was the title of the third one, I think. Well, speaking of things I've been meaning to watch, there's something else we've been meaning to watch, right, Cole? Huh. huh. I've, I've been, been meaning, meaning to watch, watch that. that. So, Cole, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a show on the American Film Institute and specifically the 10th anniversary list that they came out with of 100 years, 100 great movies. And number 11 on that list is one that neither one of us has ever seen. And boy, oh boy, am I glad that I went and watched this film because it is certainly charming and funny and sweet. And it is 1931's City Lights, starring, written, directed, produced, composed by Charlie Chaplin. 
What did you think of it, Cole? Yeah, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of the movies from the most recent 50 years, but the first 50 years of that 100 years the AFI is covering uh, was much more sparse. And certainly the silent era, uh, I was missing a ton. This is considered one of the best silent era films. It actually came out after talkies started, but Charlie Chaplin being stubborn and knowing his craft was still making silent movies, but with like little touches of sound synchronization. So in the boxing match that, by the way, if if you're trying to connect which Charlie Chaplin movie is which, there's the one where he's fallen off of a clock or the one where he's in front of a train. This is the one with the boxing match. Uh, and in the boxing match, they kind of did synchronize some sound to give some oomph and some poop to the punches that they're throwing. A couple other times, the slide whistle comes into play. It's not just a soundtrack. They have a little bit more, and I appreciated that. Yeah, and there are a lot of great sight and sound gags in this movie. You mentioned the whistle at the the party scene is hilarious where he accidentally swallows a whistle and he attracts all these dogs. He's washing his hands with the guy's, uh, I think it's cheese, but it gets replaced with the soap. And um, there's a, a scene where he's un, his vest is slowly being unraveled. But it's it centers uh, around this couple, this this uh, tramp, as he's listed in the credits, and this blind flower girl that uh, strike up this friendship and maybe even a little bit of romance. And he's trying to raise some money for her, not only to have her sight restored, but also so to prevent her from being evicted from her apartment. Just to pay the rent. And, right. And so that's why he ends up in the boxing ring. And no, no kidding, Cole. While watching this boxing scene, I had some genuine laugh out loud <laughs> moments where there were some real belly chuckles there. And oh, it's just a classic, classic scene. And I was cheering for him to win because I wanted him to earn the money so that he could be with this woman. And I it's one of the better romantic comedies that I've seen, because even though it was silent, even though it was short, you really get invested in these characters and you're just Oh, you want them to be together so bad. And uh, the only thing I thought was weird was, well, no, no, I won't. I'm just going to cut that out. Okay. I wanted them to be together so bad. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but I think almost 100 years later, it's safe to do so. They get together in the end in such a satisfying, sweet way. There you have it. And why is it that all the great boxing movies, the protagonist actually loses the fight? Uh, this, this goes right up there with Rocky and Real Steel and Million Dollar Baby, and some of the others. (laughs) Well, Cole, uh, we would be remiss in our duties as hosts of the show if we didn't end the show by doing a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. (laughs) It's no surprise that we're all stuck at home and trying to figure out ways to maintain our sanity. Well, one family in Michigan is coming up with a very clever way of doing this. They've posted a sign outside of their house that says, you have now entered the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Silly Walks. Commence silly walking immediately. So you can go to their Facebook and Instagram account at yorkshire.silly.walks And you can see all the people that are walking by in a very silly manner. If you're not familiar with the Ministry of Silly Walks, that comes from a sketch from the troupe Monty Python. 
And man, what a great way to pass the time to get people to put a smile on their face and to just throw caution to the wind and pull out a little silly walk from time to time. I think we could all use some silly walking in our lives, don't you think, Cole? We're all just trying to get through this time. However it is you do it, however you walk through your days, uh, may it be silly. Again, check out at yorkshire.silly.walks on Instagram and Facebook. And you can check out our podcast. Just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast. You can look us up on byuradio.org or listen to us here every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on BYU Radio. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we'll see you next time.